Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Hello and welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. This is episode 43, I believe, or 44. For the past several weeks, I have been defending a an interpretation of Genesis 1 known as the Cosmic Temple Inauguration view of Genesis 1. This interpretation is uh, most popularly known from John Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, Ancient Cosmology and the Origin Debate. And if you didn't discover from Walton, if you didn't discover it from Walton's book, you may have also seen the view defended in Inspiring Philosophy's YouTube video series on Genesis. He's got a whole series on Genesis, and just recently he got to Genesis 3. But he started out with Genesis 1, and he defended the Cosmic Temple slash function-oriented view. So in episode 39, I presented the Cosmic Temple inauguration view of Genesis 1 and showed that Genesis 1 is about a seven-day temple inauguration ceremony. And what God does during the seven days, or during the six days rather, is not the creation of material things out of nothing, or even out of pre-existing material. It's not about material creation at all. It's about functional creation. God is assigning functions to everything that exists. The sun, moon, and stars, he creates time on day one, he creates, he, he assigns the functions of the weather, he declares that on day three that the purpose, the function of the land is to create trees, uh, trees and fruit, vegetation, and things of that sort. Uh, in episode 40 and 41, I responded to William Lane Craig's objections to the Cosmic Temple inauguration view, and in episode 42, I responded to Hugh Ross's objection to the Cosmic Temple inauguration view, and in the previous episode, oh, I guess this, that would make this episode 44, in the previous episode, I responded to Thomas Purifoy Jr.'s objections to the Cosmic Temple inauguration view. Uh, t- Thomas for those of you who don't know, Thomas Purifoy Jr. is the director of the uh, pro-Young Earth creationist movie, Is Genesis History. And that website for Is Genesis History also has a blog. And so I looked at his objections, and so I've been, do- just as Inspiring Philosophy has been doing a YouTube video series on Genesis, I've all- I've been doing a I've done a blog post series and a podcast series on it. And today, uh, we are beginning on Genesis 2 and 3. We looked at Genesis 1, saw that Genesis 1 is about seven days of God assigning functions for things, how they are going to function for humanity in the context of his temple. He comes up uh, into it. He takes up residence in the cosmos on day 7. So he can start ruling it, and so now we're going to look at Genesis 2 and 3. Now, a lot of people 
just cannot bring themselves to become Christians because they believe that science and the Bible, with regards to what they have to say about origins, conflict. Well, as we've been seeing in the last previous episodes, the Bible does not really have an account of material origins. That's not what Genesis 1 is about. Genesis 1 is about functional origins and the material man the material manufacturing process of the universe how long it took god to materially manufacture the universe what methods he used if any uh, the the bible leaves that an open question but even if you say okay evan i get that genesis 1 does not have an account of material origins and so therefore whatever science may or may not say about material origins, we're free to either accept it or reject it on its own merits. But the creation story does not end with Genesis 1. It continues in Genesis 2. We have the creation of Adam and Eve, and it says Adam is made from the dust of the ground, and Eve is made from his rib. Uh, this doesn't sound like the picture of human evolution that you're presented with in paleontology classes. And doesn't the Bible teach that all human beings descended from Adam and Eve, that we're all that there was just one original couple from whom we all descended from? You know, we we all trace our ancestries no matter who you are. If you go back far enough, you're gonna get back to Adam and Eve. Doesn't the Bible teach that? Isn't that what the church has believed throughout the centuries? So and how does this how can you reconcile this with population genetics that says that there, uh, at the dawn of humanity there was no – there was a bottleneck no smaller than about 10,000 individuals? It seems like Genesis 2 and modern science, genetics, paleontology, biology, they're just – they're hopelessly at odds. So even if you can – even if you can reconcile Genesis 1 with an ancient age of the earth and even evolution uh, – Genesis – if if Genesis 1 is not incompatible with an old earth and evolution, Genesis 2 surely is, right? Well, actually, I understand people who struggle with this, and many theistic evolutionists, they're just tempted to just throw the first 11 chapters of Genesis out the window and say, oh, it was all, it's all just allegory. It's all just myth and – uh, but God, God, the Holy Spirit inspired the author to put this myth in there because it conveys certain theological points. It's like a bedtime story or something that, you know, it's not a true account or, or anything, but you can learn from it. And so there's a purpose for it. Uh, and that's, that's pretty much what they say. They say that Genesis, the, the biblical history, salvation history, doesn't begin until you get to Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. Well, I've never found this position very persuasive, and I don't find it exegetically tenable. I, th I am committed to a historical Adam. I'm committed to a historical Eve. And there are two primary reasons for that. The first is what Paul has to say about Adam in Romans chapter 5, and we're going to get to that passage later in the podcast. Uh, but Paul talks about how uh, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so all death spread to all men because all sin, and, and you know, and he and he, com he compares, and he also does this in First Corinthians fifteen. He compares Adam with Jesus. Adam, G uh, Paul, Adam, I'm getting all my names mixed up. 
Adam was the first Adam, and Jesus is the last Adam. Adam failed. He failed to obey God. He brought sin to all people and death into the world. But the last Adam, Jesus, he obeyed God completely and perfectly. And what he did, his one act, brought life to the world. It brought salvation instead of condemnation. It freed us from the power of sin, unlike Adam, who put us in the bondage of sin. So Adam and Christ are antitypes in Pauline theology. Uh, the, the, all of the bad stuff that Adam brought onto the human race, the last Adam, Jesus, he undid all of that. Now, how do you make, you know, and this is this is pretty much a summary of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 12 to 21, and in 1 Corinthians 15, in which he talks about Adam and Jesus, very in, along very similar lines in Romans. Now, if Adam were just a literary figure, I don't think Paul's argument works here. I don't think, I think a very crucial premise of his compare and contrast between Adam and Christ is just undermined. How can a literary figure bring sin into the world? How can a literary figure put us in bondage to sin and death? And how can how can death reign from a literary figure, Adam, to a historical figure, Moses? It just doesn't make any sense. Second reason, second primary reason I'm committed to a historical Adam is the genealogies in First Chronicles and in the Gospel of Luke. The genealogies in the Gospel of Luke trace Jesus' ancestry all the way back to Adam. It goes through all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and it just it says this person is the son of this person, this person is the son of this person, this person is the son of this person, so on and so forth, and you can recognize notable Old Testament figures, and he, it, it gets all the way back to Adam. And First Chronicles also traces Adam through to Noah, and from Noah to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and, and you know you have a very long list of begats. Now, if there was no Adam, and if there was no Noah, if there were no Adam and Eve, if these are just literary figures, then the genealogies in First Chronicles and the Gospel of Luke are in error, because. It's impossible for a literary figure to give rise to a historical person. As I like to commonly and humorously put it, to say that is to say that Jesus is descended from Adam makes as much sense as saying that Betty White is descended from Snow White. Betty White cannot be a descendant of Snow White because Snow White is a fairy tale character, and Betty White is a real person. So go all the way, trace Betty White's ancestry as far back as you can. You're never going to find a Snow White. So it's impossible. So the Bible, in saying that Jesus is a, d a descendant all the way back to Adam, the Bible's got to be wrong. But the Bible cannot be wrong because as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for rebuking and training in righteousness and equipping the man of God for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. And since all scripture comes from an infallible God, the Bible cannot be in error. There are some other reasons, but there are some uh, arguments for why Adam must be a historical character that aren't quite as strong and could work with Adam being a literary character, such as 
uh, Jesus mentioning them in some of his teachings, like, um, but I'm not going to get into those because I don't find them as compelling as uh, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, and then the fact that the genealogies trace Jesus to Adam. So what are we to do about this? If, if the Bible commits us to a historical Adam and Eve, and yet the scientific evidence, and I'm leaving that an open question, by the way. I'm not getting into the scientific evidence. I'm not a scientist. I'm, I, I'm out of my depth in talking about biology and paleontology and all that. I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm going to leave that an open question. I, I look at the arguments for and against common ancestry, and I, I think the guys arguing for it have a, a much stronger case. But that's all I can say. I'm not qualified to publicly defend common ancestry, nor do I want to, nor do I have the motivation to. I'm not here to convince you of a certain scientific theory of origins. I'm here to convince you that Christianity is true, and it is a reasonable worldview, and Jesus came and died for your sins, and he rose from the dead, and if you place your faith in him, you will have eternal life, and if you don't, you will perish. That's, you know, as I like to say, I'm an apologist for Jesus Christ. I'm not an apologist for Charles Darwin. But anyway, if we are committed to a historical Adam and Eve, and, and let's say you find, let's say you look at the, his, the scientific evidence that the paleontologists and geneticists and biologists put forth for human evolution and, and common, common ancestry as a whole, and you're like, wow, this is really compelling. I think we really did evolve from uh, lower primates, and we share common ancestry with chimps, and uh, there couldn't have been a, a smaller human population than about 10,000. You know, what do we do about that? Well... There is a book coming out soon called The Genealogical Adam and Eve by a man named S. Joshua Swamidas. And he argues that he argues for the compatibility between a historical Adam and Eve. And he argues, uh, you know, the compatibility between a historical Adam and Darwinian evolution. And you can even hold that Adam and Eve were de novo creations, literally miraculously transformed dust, and Eve was literally made from Adam's side, and you can fit that within a Darwinian framework. I'm going to have him on the show, on the podcast, this December to talk about his book. But I'm going to make the case that even if... I'm going to make the case that you don't even need to see them as de novo creations, nor do you need to see them as ancestors of all humankind now with that out of the way let's let's get let's get to the to the argument uh like i said bef before i i understand people who struggle with this and it's one it's probably the number one reason it took me so long to become an evolutionary creationist before i became an evolutionary creationist i spent two years coming through the theological and scientific literature i read blog post after blog post after blog post on biologos.org i read books uh, written by evolutionary creationists like uh, the, the language of god a scientist presents evidence for belief by francis collins i read the uh, the biologos compilation book, How I Changed My Mind About Evolution, Evangelicals Reflect on Science and Faith, uh, edited by Catherine Applegate and Jim Stump. I read uh, Deliver Us from Evolution, a, a Christian scientist's in-depth look at the evidence reveals a, sur a surprising harmony between science and God by a Christian biologist named 
Aaron R. Yilmaz. And so I just did a whole lot of study, uh, but, and in doing, in, during this, it took me two years of very in, intense study, and I found that my objections, both theological and scientific, they just fell like dominoes, one after one after one after one after one. I found out my objections to evolutionary creationism or theistic evolution just weren't very good. But throughout that whole process, I kept asking, what about Adam? What about Adam? What about Adam and Eve? How do we reconcile Genesis 2 and 3 with Darwin's theory of macroevolution? If humans descended from lower hominids and an ape-like ancestor, our common ancestor between uh, of humans and chimps, how can the Bible be right when it says God made Adam the dust of the earth uh, and Eve from his rib? And how did sin spread to the entire human race if Adam and Eve were only one of the first human beings rather than the first humans? Well, fortunately, I discovered John Walton's book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, Genesis 2-3 and the Human's Origins Debate, and it's, it answered my questions to a very high degree of satisfaction. And in this podcast episode, I'm going to be talking about some of the things that I learned from that book. First thing I learned is that Adam and Eve are archetypes. The the name Adam is a Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word for man, adult male. It, it is also used for humanity in general, including men and women. Sometimes Adam occurs with the definite article, and sometimes it occurs without the definite article. And when it occurs with the definite article, it cannot be taken as a proper noun. It cannot be taken as a, I mean, a, as a, as a name rather. It cannot be used as a name because Hebrew, like English, does not use definite articles on personal names. Adam has 34 occurrences in Genesis chapters 1 to 5. Now, without the definite article, Adam is sometimes used as a personal name. It's you, Adam is used as a personal name in Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, and Genesis chapter 5, verses 4, 5, and chapter 4, verse 1. The word is sometimes the word is used to describe generic unit humanity four times. Uh, those would be in Genesis chapter one verse twenty six, Genesis chapter two verse five, chapter five verse verse one. In the latter half, the first half of chapter five verse one uses it as a personal name, and the latter half uses it uh, to refer to generic humanity. Also, Genesis 5.2 and Genesis 1.27. Adam is not Adam's real name. Adam is a real person. Don't get me wrong. Like I said, I'm committed to a historical Adam. Adam is a real person, but Adam is not his real name. Eve is likewise a real person of history, but she was not called Eve. Shavah in Hebrew. Now, this might sound jarring to many readers. How could I say such a thing? I mean, or rather, many listeners. Uh, how could I say such a thing? The Bible clearly calls them Adam and Eve. I'm, I'm directly contradicting the word of God, aren't I? 
Before you brand me a heretic and report me to James White or Pulpit and Pen, let me explain what I mean when I say that they weren't really named Adam and Eve. Adam and Shabbat are Hebrew words. They're Hebrew words. Everyone agrees with that. Now, the Hebrew language did not come into existence as a language until about the time of Moses at the earliest. So how can you have Hebrew name? How can people who lived before the development of the Hebrew language have Hebrew names? So these are not their historical names. These are given names from a later audience with a different language. I would also say that these names are given with important meaning in mind. So one could translate the Hebrew name of Adam as human. The, the name of the dude in Genesis 2-3 to is human. I'm kind of glad that the translators did not do this, as many people name their figures after, uh, name their children after biblical figures. Can you imagine going to see a human Sandler movie, or can you or can you imagine saying that uh, Human Gontier is the former lead singer of Three Days Grace? <laughs> human Gontier. I don't know you from human. A human's apple. <laughs> Joking aside, imagine if the translators did render the word human. You would read that biblical passage very differently, wouldn't you? His name is human, and her name's life. That's what Shabbat means. Shabbat, which is translated in our English Bibles as Eve, it means life. Human and life. Even this issue of the names itself opens up the possibility for other types of thinking. I think the names are indicative that Adam and Eve, or human and life, are meant to be archetypal figures. Now, by archetypal, I do not mean it in the literary sense. For example, the villain, the hero. Nor do I mean that Adam and Eve are fictitious characters. I can't stress this enough. I am committed to a historical Adam. Archetypal does not equal non-historical or fictional. Rather, what I mean by archetypal is that lots of things that are described as being true of Adam and Eve are meant to be, they're meant to be described or they're meant to be telegraphed truths about all humanity. John Walton, in a lecture that I watched on YouTube uh, a little while back, gave an analogy of what it would mean to describe a class of people in archetypal terms. A group of elementary school children were asked the question, what are mothers made of? The question wasn't, what is your mother made of? The question is, what are mothers, as a class of people, made of? The elementary school children understood that. One little girl said, mothers are made of angel wings, clouds, and string, and just a little bit of mean. <laughs> She wasn't describing biology or biochemistry, and anyone who took the little girl to be speaking of biology or chemistry might accuse her of being an error if they took a blood sample and found a lack of angel wings and clouds. She was speaking archetypally, something true of all mothers. Moreover, the things the girl described had special meaning. 
the imagery wasn't just pulled out of thin air. Angel wings and clouds could refer to the nurturing and comforting nature of a mother. M a mother can be like a guardian angel, who we all uh, imagine. We all imagine angels as being having wings. Uh, biblically, that's not correct. Only this, only certain classes of divine beings have wings, like the seraphim. But that's a that's a rabbit trail. Uh, <laughs> uh, angels have wings. Okay, so a guardian angel, guardian angel has wings. So a mother it can can be like a guardian angel. She protects you. She guides you. She instructs you. She keeps you on the right path. Um. Also, in describing mothers archetypally, she was not described. She was not at all denying the reality that her mother was a real person who existed in space and time. I will return to this after uh, I get with the next point. The next point that I learned from John Walton's *The Lost World of Adam and Eve*. The next point is the Toledot. The Toledot. Most people think Genesis two. Uh, is simply, and I did. I certainly did. In fact, I presupposed it. I didn't even question it. Was just a, it was an assumption that I brought to the text, and it was an assumption that a lot of the commentators and a lot of the the apologists and theologians I read, I read brought to the text. They didn't even make a case for it. They just assumed it. Like in Hugh Ross's book, uh, the Genesis Question, that came out in two thousand. Recently, he came out with a more recent version called Navigating Genesis. Uh, it's just assumed that Genesis 2 is a more ex expanded version of what happened on day 6 of Genesis 1. Um, but in here's the thing. Genesis 1 does not mention Adam and Eve by name. Genesis 1 does not say that God only created two human beings on day 6. The text says... Let us make man in our image. Da 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 da. God created them male and female. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. That's what it says. There's no names given. It doesn't say how many there were. It just, God just says, Let us make man in our image. And God made them male and female in his image. <laughs> That's all it says. Genesis 1 is very nonspecific. Genesis 2, I have come, I am convinced by Walton's argument that Genesis 2 is more likely a sequel to Genesis 1. The events of Genesis 1 happen chronologically after the cosmic temple inauguration ceremony of, of Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 says, Quote, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the, the earth and the heavens, end quote. <clears throat> the Hebrew word translated as account in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 is toledot. The literary formula, this is the account of X, occurs several other times in the book of Genesis. Each time it does, it reports what comes after that statement. This is the account of blah, blah, blah. It is never used to introduce a recapitulation of some narrative that came before. Here are 
some examples. Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and earth. Genesis chapter 5 verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Genesis chapter 6 verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Genesis chapter 10 verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Genesis chapter 11 verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. Genesis 11:27. now these are the generations of Terah. Genesis 25:12. these are the generations of Ishmael. Genesis 25:19. these are the generations of Isaac. Genesis 36, 1, these are the generations of Esau. Genesis 37, 2, these are the generations of Jacob. So, in each of these cases, every single one of these cases introduces what comes after the generations of the person described. Adam, Noah, sons of Noah, Shem, Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, Jacob. In the case of Esau and Jacob, there is a um, there is a recursive nature. It will say it will give um, but that's not the same as a recapitulation. A recursive account always happens with brothers, for one thing, it happens with brothers, and it happens with the narrative detailing the less important line and then returning to the more important line. So Esau, not very important in Israel's history, so it tells Esau's descendants and what happened to him and the nation that he went on to found first, and then we get back to Isaac, the one we actually care about, because he's going to... I mean, Jacob, because, uh, you know, hey, he's, he's the... I mean, he's, he's even renamed Israel. He's given the name of the nation that he's going to go on to found. So he's the more important one. So we talk about, so Moses is like, I'm going to talk about Esau first, and then I'm going to come back and talk about Jacob. Just get Esau out of the way there. <laughs> so, but in every other case, the non-recursive examples, in examples where you don't have the more important brother talk, uh, the, the less important brother talked about first, and then you go back in time, and then you talk about the more important brother. That's not a recapitulation. It's it's just you're talking about two things that happened simultaneously in time, narrative fashion. In every other case of the Toledot, the, these are the generations of blah, 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 it talks about it's an introductory phrase of what comes after that person. So on this basis... Based on the regularity of the of Toledots being introductions to sequel accounts, it is very probable that Genesis two is likewise a sequel to Genesis one. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter two verse four. So it's a sequel. If it's a sequel, then think about the implications of that. Think about what follows from that conclusion. If Adam and Eve are created in Genesis 2, and we have people created in Genesis 1, then the people in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, are not necessarily Adam and Eve. There could have been people who were created by God who preceded Adam and Eve. 
We cannot ignore this on biblical grounds. The text allows for it. In fact, I think the text begs for it. Now, let's go on. Let me go on to my next point. The forming accounts, the, the, this, the, the part that really trips us up when it comes to reconciling the Bible with modern science, modern uh, accounts of origins, Darwinian evolution. Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, quote, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. End quote. So, what I, watching Inspiring Philosophy's video in, on Genesis chapter 2, I watched it today. I got really far behind on Inspiring Philosophy's videos, so I just spent the entire morning binging them. So it took me like four hours, and I watched all of his videos on Genesis. And in his video on Genesis 2, he mentions that the preposition from is not in Genesis 2-7. Our English translators added that preposition. The Hebrew literally says, Then the Lord God formed a man, dust of the ground. Not from the dust of the ground, but the Lord God formed man, dust of the ground. Yahweh formed Adam. And the Hebrew word translated as formed is Yasar. And Yasar does not always okay so for one thing let me just get this out of the way genesis chapter 2 verse 7 on the basis of the hebrew language it could be translated either the lord god formed a man from the dust of the ground or it could be translated the lord god formed a man who is the dust of the ground god formed a god formed man dust of the ground God formed man who is the dust of the ground. Now that that makes you think about it a lot differently. But also look at the word formed, yasar. Yasar does not always necessitate a material act of formation. Uh, Zechariah chapter 12 verse 1 is just one example using the human spirit, something clearly incorporeal. John Walton in The Lost World of Adam and Eve provides other examples. Now, the following examples I'm going to cite, uh, I'm going to be quoting an excerpt from Walton's book. God speaks of events that are taking place as having been formed, New International Version, planned, long ago. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 25 Isaiah chapter 37 verse 26 confer Isaiah chapter 22 verse 11 and 46:11 Jeremiah chapter 18 verse 11 When God forms the heart the statement is not referring to the blood pump but to thoughts and inclinations Psalm 33:15 God formed summer and winter Psalm 74:17 a corrupt administration forms, New International Version brings on, misery for the people through its decrees, Psalm 94.20. Our days are formed by God, Psalm chapter 139, verse 16. Israel 
is formed by God. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 1, verse 21. Isaiah chapter 44 verse 2. Isaiah chapter 44 verse 21. Isaiah chapter 44 verse 24. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 11. Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 16. And chapter 51 verse 19. As a people. Obviously, the individual people that comprise the nation of Israel pre-existed the nation of Israel itself. Therefore, the formation of Israel is not a material act of bringing new things into being from non-being. The people who comprised Israel pre-existed Israel, yet the text says that God formed the nation of Israel. God forms light and creates darkness, Isaiah 45, 7. While we recognize light, and this is me talking here, while we recognize light as a material substance, it's composed of photons, the ancients did not. So Isaiah would not have thought of the statement, God formed light, to be referring to the formation of anything material. Now, back to the excerpt. Servant, which God's word tells us is Cyrus elsewhere, is formed by God in the womb. Isaiah 49.5, confer Jeremiah 1.5, though he is born via the regular process of human reproduction. God forms, the NIV uses the word prepares, a swarm of locusts. See Amos chapter 7 verse 1. End quote. Quote and end quote. In his book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, Genesis 2-3 and the Human Origins Debate, Professor John Walton writes, quote, more than half of the occurrences are shown by context to be unrelated to material. Many of the occurrences listed, listed above communicate how God ordains or decrees phenomena, events, destinies, and roles. Most of the occurrences not listed here could easily be translated by alternatives like prepare, ordain, or decree. We therefore discover that our, that our predisposition to understand form as a material act has more to do with the English translation than with the Hebrew original. End quote. Dust. The referent to dust simply means that man was created mortal. This is supported by a biblical passage in the very next chapter, Genesis 3, in which God says to Adam and Eve, Dust you are and to dust you will return. Obviously, this is drawing from the imagery of decomposing bodies, which ancient Israelites would have been aware of as they collected the bones of their dead to put them in ossuaries a year after burial. It is not true only of Adam and Eve that dust they are, that dust they are, and to dust they will return. It is true of all of us. What is true of all of us? That we are created mortal. We are dust, and to dust we will return. Moreover, Psalm chapter 103, verse 14, it says, quote, For he, God, remembers how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust, end quote. Let me read that again. For he, God, remembers how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. For he remembers how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. We are dust. The psalmist is saying we, human beings, are dust. He, re he remembers how we're formed. We're dust. Well, 
wait, I don't remember being created as a fully grown adult from from a pile of dirt. I had a mom and a dad. They gave birth to me. The psalmist surely knew that he had a mom and a dad. So how, how can he say that he was formed? He says that he's dust. We're all dust. We're all formed from dust, not just Adam. What was true of Adam, that he was formed from dust, it's, it's true of all of us. Psalm 103.14 strongly implies that being formed from dust is not something unique to Adam, but it's true of all humankind. Moreover, the Apostle Paul alludes to this archetypal nature of Adam and humanity when he contrasts Adam with Jesus in his first letter to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 47-48, to Paul writes, quote, The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are in heaven, end quote. He says the first man was of the dust of the earth, and as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 20 also supports this conclusion, that when the Bible uses dust language of humanity, it is referring to our mortality. What does Ecclesiastes 3.20 say? All go unto one place. All are of the dust. And all turn to dust again. So, all, wait, all are of the dust. All are of the dust. And all turn to dust again. Further evidence, I mean, think about that. That's what, this is what Ecclesiastes 3.20 is saying. All are of the dust. You know, all of us who have mommies and daddies and are born through a, no, a normal birth process. Further evidence. It can be found in Job chapter 10, verse 9. What does Job 10, 9 say? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Here, Job says to God that he molded him from clay. Obviously, no one thinks that Job was miraculously transformed from a clump of clay into a living human being. Nor does anyone think that Job himself thought that. While clay is not the same word as dust, it is certainly indicated it certainly is indicative that ancient peoples could know full well that they were born through the process of natural procreation, yet say of God that God formed them out of some earthly material. Now, if Job, being formed from clay, doesn't mean that Job didn't have a mommy or a daddy, then why should Adam, being formed from dust, mean that Adam didn't have a mommy or a daddy? However, notice what Job also says. He not only says, you formed me from clay, he, you molded me from clay. He, he then says, will you now turn me to dust again? This implies that Job believed he was dust at a prior point in time, since he asks God if he's going to turn him to dust again. Question, how can anything happen again unless it happened a first time? It would be like saying, am I going to win the lottery again? Well, I never won, I've never won the lottery in my life, so I can't win it again unless I win it a first time. What all this leads to is the conclusion that God created Adam 
to be mortal. That's what it means when it says God made Adam from or or of, which are not prepositions in the original Hebrew anyway, but even if you want to put one in there, that's what it means. Dust, Adam, dust. Man, dust. What's true of Adam is true of all humanity. I am made of dust. You are, I, I am made from dust. You are made from dust. This whole courtroom is made from dust. <laughs> the psalmist explicitly said that we are all formed from dust. That's what the, Psalm 103, 14 says. And Job said that he was in Job 10, 9. Now, popular teaching on Genesis is that Adam and Eve were created inherently immortal. And that they lost this immortality when they sinned. They would reject this the explanation I gave in spite of the biblical evidence because they would say it contradicts what Romans 5 says. However, people who say that Adam and Eve were created mortal and draw this conclusion from a reading of Romans 5, what they are doing is reading into the text something that isn't there. Genesis says that God placed a tree of life in the garden. And Genesis specifically says that God had to ban Adam and Eve from re-entering the garden. Otherwise, they would reach and eat of the tree, the tree of life, and live forever. That's Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 to 22. That's the rationale that God gives for banning Adam and Eve from the garden, so that they don't reach out, eat of the tree of life, and live forever. Question, if Adam and Eve were inherently immortal, why would they have needed a tree of life? Immortal people don't need a tree of life. The very presence of the tree of life suggests that Adam and Eve were created inherently mortal. Otherwise, if they were, if they were immortal, the tree of life would be superfluous. There would be no need for it to be there. Does this come into conflict with what Paul says in Romans 5? No. Because if humanity is cut off from the remedy of death, the tree of life, and they were, God kicked them out of the garden and placed a, a, a cherubim there with a flaming sword to make sure that they didn't get past there. I certainly wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't take on a cherubim. That would be a death wish. Um, they couldn't get to the tree of life. And so what happens if people who are inherently mortal cannot get to the tree of life? They die. Without that miraculous fruit, Adam and Eve, not to mention their descendants, would grow old and die. Adam's sin led to being banned from the tree of life. Being banned from the tree of life meant that immortality was no longer available to Adam. Therefore, Adam was doomed to die, as would his descendants be. Adam's sin brought death, not because God removed an immortality that he had inherently in response, but because Adam no longer had access to the cure. Okay, now let's get to... Okay, so here, here's the thing. Adam, there was, there's nothing about the text that prevents Adam from having a mom or dad. But what about Eve? What about the forming account of Eve? 
Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 to 25 says, quote, So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother, and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. End quote. Genesis 2 says God put Adam to sleep and took a rib from his side to make Eve. The word translated here is Selah, which often refers to the site of a mountain or the site of a temple. See chapter 8 of The Lost World of Adam and Eve for, uh, the, for the biblical examples. What this implies is that God didn't just take a piece of Adam's a piece of Adam's side, like one rib, but his entire side. He broke Adam in half. That's pretty radical surgery, right? Well, as I pointed out in my blog post, Hermeneutics Part Three Hermeneutics one oh one part three, the cultural context, and in as I've repeated uh Repeated repeatedly? <laughs> As I've said repeatedly uh, in this podcast series on Genesis 1, we need to interpret Scripture the way its original author and audience would have understood it. They would not have had any concept of anesthetized surgery. Anesthesia hadn't been invented yet. So they wouldn't have viewed God as putting Adam to sleep as a sort of divinely caused anesthesia to keep him from feeling pain as he extracted one of Adam's ribs. Moreover, according to many Christian interpreters, there was no possibility for, of pain before the fall. Uh, there was no possibility of it. It, was just, it wasn't just simply that there was no pain. It was, there was an absence of pain. Uh, some Christian interpreters say there wasn't even an impossibility. And these are the same people, by the way, who believe Adam and Eve had inherent immortality. If that were the case, Adam wouldn't have needed anesthesia anyway. He would be impervious to pain. He wouldn't feel a thing. So, if, if, an if anesthetized surgery isn't what the text has in view, what does the text have in view? What? What is it? The Hebrew word translated rib, selah. Several commentators and Old Testament scholars don't believe that rib is an accurate translation. Because there is a Hebrew word for rib, and it's not selah. Now, the text says that God put Adam into a tardima. Took Adam, God put Adam into a, tar, a tardima, took Adam's selah to make Eve. The Hebrew word translated as deep sleep is tardima. tardima. Several examples in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament uh, of this refer to a trance someone would go into to receive a vision from God. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 12, 
Eliphaz in Job chapter 4, verse 13, Daniel in Daniel chapter 8, verse 18, and Daniel chapter 10, verse 9, and Job chapter 33, verse 15. As John Walton notes, quote, the Septuagint translators chose to use the Greek word ekstasis in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. By the, in case you didn't know, the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it's very likely the, the Old Testament that Jesus and the apostles read or heard read from. And in the New Testament, the Septuagint is what they quote from. So, John Walton says, quote, The Septuagint translators chose to use the Greek word ekstasis in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. This word is the same as the one they use in Genesis chapter 15, verse 12, suggesting an understanding related to visions, trances, and ecstasy. Confer the use of this Greek word in Acts chapter 10, verse 10, Acts chapter 11, verse 5, and chapter 22, verse 17, translated in the, in, the NIV as trance, end quote. What the use of the word tardema and selah suggest is that God put Adam into a trance, a visionary state. Not, not a state of anesthesia, but a visionary state. In this state, he saw a vision of God taking him and cutting, in, and cutting him in half to make a woman. The point of the vision is that woman is ontologically equal to man. Eve serves as an archetype for women, just as, men are, just as all men are created mortal, i.e. from dust. All women are made from the side of all men, i.e. all women are ontologically equal to men. Matthew Henry echoes this sentiment in his commentary when he writes, quote, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him, End quote. To be equal with man, to be under man's arms to be protected, to be loved by man, uh, by a man that that is true of all women not just eve this was god's intention for all women not just eve what can we draw from the information we've concluded thus far we can we can conclude that the bible does not speak to the material origins of adam and eve or nor of humanity in general Therefore, the Bible does not demand that we take a de novo view of Adam and Eve's creation. Adam and Eve could have had parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, etc. Indeed, Adam and Eve's ancestry could go all the way back to lower hominids, such as Homo erectus, Homo habilis, and Australopithecus. It could go all the way back to Tiktaalik, the, the fish with legs. In other words, Genesis chapters 2 to 3 does not rule out human evolution from lower primates. Now, this does not mean that, the Christ, that Christians should automatically jump on the evolution bandwagon. Just because the, an idea is compatible with the Bible doesn't mean the idea should be adopted without any thought. However, one cannot say 
on the basis of of scripture that we are barred from considering accepting the scientific consensus on human origin uh, human origin on the basis of biblical authority if the bible doesn't speak on the on the material aspects of human origins if it doesn't have an account of how humans materially came into being we are free to consider a range of alternatives including evolution next point the bible does not demand oh, by the way again even if you're not convinced by my arguments and you think that the bible does demand that we see adam and eve as de novo creations well hopefully my my upcoming guest in december s joshua swamidas he'll convince you you can still accept evolution even if you even if you think adam was literally transformed dust and eve was a literally transformed rib so stay tuned but anyway my next point you know so so i anyway i i'm i'm taking i'm thinking of of using uh swamidas's thesis and walton's uh, exegesis to make an even if but in fact argument even if the bible were really saying adam and eve were, were miraculously they were de novo creations uh, that still doesn't mean that there's a conflict between evolution uh and genesis 2 but in fact the bible does not demand that that's, that's not what this is about that's not what it means when it says that adam was yassard dust and so on moving on the Bible does not demand that Adam and Eve are sole progenitors of the human race. It doesn't. Um, now, it is, um, I would argue that the relationship of Genesis 1 and 2 allow for the possibility that, Adam and, that the Adam and Eve account in Genesis 2 could have come after an en masse creation of humanity in Genesis 1, though Adam and Eve should be considered maybe as having been included in that group, maybe not. Moreover, other things in the biblical text make more sense if Adam and Eve weren't the only human beings uh, around at the time of their origins. There are three things. One, if there were other people around, it would provide an answer for where Cain got his wife. The incest option has never been an attractive one. Creationists have just adopted the incest uh, explanation because they felt compelled to. I mean, where else is Cain? How else is the human race going to procreate? You know, you got to have brothers and sisters having sex with each other. You know, how else is it going to happen? Um. But, I mean, the view, the view may have some other problems. Uh, some time ago, I was on a Google Hangouts chat with an evolutionary creationist friend of mine, and, and this, was, this was before I ever became one myself. He pointed out that Leviticus says that God condemned the nations surrounding Israel for practicing incest even before the law of Moses was given, indicating that incest was always deemed sinful by God. Leviticus 18 provides prohibitions against many sexual activities, including incest. Verse 24 of Leviticus 18 says, 
quote, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, end quote. God says that the sexual sins that he listed previously are among the reasons that he would judge the Canaanites. Yet the Canaanites didn't have the law of Moses, nor, did been, nor had it been given to anyone yet. Indeed, God laying it down for Moses for the first God is laying it down for the very first time to Moses in this passage. So, what we could conclude from Leviticus 18.24 is that incest had always been a, a sin. It had There had never been a time in which it had been okay. So it would be very odd for God to set up the world in such a way that incest, would, which he considers to be a sin, would be necessary. It would be it would be necessary for Adam and Eve's children to sin in order to make more human beings. Now, that's one that's one argument, but I do have a couple of doubts about it. Uh, someone on the the Cerebral Faith blog uh, left a comment section in my blog post called "Why There's No Conflict Between Evolution and a Historical Adam," and and she wrote. You mentioned that incest was considered a sin by God even before the Mosaic Law was given. But in Genesis chapter 20, verse 12, Abraham mentioned Sarah was his sister, half-sister. And in Exodus 6.20, Moses' mother Jochebed was the aunt of his father Amran. So technically, were their marriages considered sinful, or is there some A&E explanation slash context? And I replied saying... Interesting points I haven't thought of. I'll have to do more study and research on this. So that's some food for thought. Uh, if if God always considered Levit, uh, if this wasn't just if this isn't just a sin because of the genetic problems that arose after many many generations, um, yeah. So, but even if you throw that argument out the window, there's still two others. Cain moved to a city. City would not be an appropriate term unless it was a human settlement with a large number of people. Another argument is that, as I already stated, Genesis 2-4 is a sequel to Genesis 1, meaning Adam and Eve's formation occurred after Genesis chapter 1, verses 26-27. The account translated, uh, the word translated as account in Genesis 2-4 is toledot, the literary formula, this is the account of X, occurs several other times in the book of Exodus, and each time it does, it reports what comes after. It's never used as a recapitulation of what the narrative described before. Okay, so next point. So how did Adam how did sin spread from Adam and Eve's sin? How did it spread? Romans 5.12 says that, quote, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, end quote. Traditionally, Christians have held to the Augustinian position, that means it came from St. Augustine, in case you weren't aware, uh, that, uh, that the sinful nature was inherited from Adam. We all have a sin nature. The sin nature causes or inclines us to sin. And because we've sinned, we are in need of salvation. But if Adam and Eve aren't the sole progenitors of the human race, how could we have all inherited the same sinful nature from Adam? 
it should be noted that Romans 5, nor does the entire Bible, give us an, a, an actual explanation as to how sin spreads to humankind. It only says that it did. We are therefore free to speculate and come up with theories on how this occurred, and this is certainly what Augustine did. He said, hey, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's passed down from generation to generation. Um, I remember in The Lost World of Adam and Eve, he, uh, Walton mentioned that, oh, who was it? Was it Polycarp or Irenaeus or Ignatius? It was one of the church fathers. Uh, he had this kind of uh, – he had this idea that sin was kind of like a – you know, use, to use modern terms, it would be like like when a nuclear bomb is dropped and it, it radiate it causes the whole – area to be radioactive and therefore if you're in the area you'll contract cancer and mutations and all sorts of nasty stuff that comes with radiation exposure uh and so the war ignatius or Irenaeus or whoever i'm thinking of here had this idea that the the world was contaminated with sin and so you got a sin nature simply from being in the world uh now the reason that Jesus didn't have a sin nature is what is because his divinity inoculated him. You know, that's kind of a weird that's kind of a weird view to see sin as kind of like this radioactive substance that permeates the creation, but it's not impossible, I don't think. Uh but you know but it, and it's also possible that there's a combination of Augustine's view and Irenaeus's view. You know, maybe, maybe um, the whole world was infected because sin was kind of this contagion in the air, and once the human population was infected, the sin nature was passed down generation after generation after generation. You know, so. Uh, and, you know, it's okay to say we don't know. We don't know how sin spread. Maybe Adam and Eve were bad influences on their contemporary homo sapiens, and they they sinned, and they got sin natures, and so they passed on their sinful natures to it, to their offspring. So it was a combination of bad inf being a bad influence and, uh, you know, bad company corrupting good character and passing the sin nature down through the generations. So, in, in conclusion, the view that Adam and Eve, as historical persons, and being the one through whom sin was introduced into the world, does not have to be forfeited in light of what modern science says about human origins. Genesis 2 does not address the material origins of Adam and Eve, but it uses dust and side as indicate as indicating archetypal features that they have we are all made from dust and all women are made from the side of all men what does this mean it means all men are made mortal and all women are made to be ontological equals with men yet despite the fact that we're all made from dust and we're all made uh, women are all made from the side uh, from the side of all men. We have material continuity with previous biological ancestors. Furthermore, there are clues within the biblical text itself that indicate Adam and Eve were not the sole human beings on the face of the earth. Cain built a city, 
and you need a lot of people to have a city even by ancient standards. If it was just Cain and maybe a couple of brothers of, of his, that wouldn't be a city. That would be a man cave. Um, and finally, uh, there's no issue regarding a theology of the fall. Adam and Eve could have been a, ba a, a bad influence. I adopted a little bit of a Chicagoan accent there for a second. Uh, they could have been a bad influence on their contemporaries who were bad contemporaries on others who were bad contemporaries on, on others and so on until all developed a sinful nature. And this sinful nature, all of these peoples transmitted down through their lineages. Now, there are some other things that I could talk about. What about Acts chapter 17, where uh, Paul says that from one man God built all of the nations? What about what about um, Genesis? What about the fact that Adam calls Eve the mother of all living in Genesis chapter 2? You know, what about those things? Doesn't that indicate that we are all inherited from Adam and Eve? Well, not necessarily. Um, I don't really have to. I want to comment on that mother of all living thing. I want to find the biblical passages. Um Um, and it, it, well, actually, I have a couple of more um, podcast episodes I want to do on the Adam and Eve issues. So instead of bringing it up in this podcast episode, I'll bring it up next time. So thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Shout out to my patrons, David Parrish, Kevin Walker, Jordan Apodaca, Austin Long, James Whitaker. You guys are awesome. Um, thank you for your patronage, thank you for your financial support, and your moral support. And if you want to be a, pat a patron, and by the way, these are not just donations, you get a lot of perks, you get a lot of goodies, you get early access to the podcast episodes, early, episode early access to the blog posts, you get shoutouts on the podcast, you get, um, you get all of my Kindle books for... I'm talking all of them for your $3 patronage, just a $3 patronage. And if you're a $20 patron, you get all of that, and you can talk to me once a month on Skype or Facebook Messenger. And you can also be part of the secret Facebook group, Cerebral Faith Patrons, where you can interact with other patrons like yourself. So you get a lot of goodies uh, by being a patron. So if you want to, if you want to be a patron, go to Patreon.com/CerebralFaith. And by the way, if you if you discovered the Cerebral Faith podcast through iTunes or Podbean or some other podcatcher, and you want more of my material, go to www.CerebralFaith.net. 
Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, and I will see you next time. Peace out, and God bless.